The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss The Matrix and Reality's Tessellated Game Board. Sounds a little complex, right? It's really not all that difficult when it gets down to brass tacks. Many of these philosophies that we live through in our modern society are based upon Freemasonic ideas. And the idea of the tessellated game board, or what you might know as the regular chess board, is very much a symbol of Freemasonry and the secret society groups, the various secret schools of this world, the mystery teachings of antiquity, representing duality, among other things. So tonight we're going to discuss some of these properties of this place that we live, and what some of the Masonic philosophy is that underlies much of our reality. And the thing is, in their writings, they do convey many truths to us. But as always, I caution people to take it all with an air of salt because they always, always, always poison the well when they put forward some of these types of teachings. So tonight, we're going to be reading primarily from a book here titled Mystic Masonry by J.D. Buck. And this one was written quite a long time ago. I think the publication date was sometime in the early 1900s, if memory serves me. Uh, I do believe I have it in the description of the episode here. I think it was 1911 or sometime around then, if memory serves me correctly. But uh, let's get right into the meat of the topic here and read from the text. The Genius of Freemasonry. The traditions, glyphs, and ritual of Freemasonry cluster around the building of the temple. The legend of the widow's son, Hiram Abiff, who lost his life in the defense of his integrity and the search for the lost word of the master. As the candidate progresses degree after degree, he is furnished with the working tools suited to his degree of knowledge and proficiency, given instruction as to their use. The lesser and greater lights are revealed and explained, and through all, each outer form or material thing is shown to be a symbol of a deeper mystery, a concealed potency. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Did you catch that? The lesser and the greater lights. This is how they mask the idea that they lie to their initiates of the lower orders. They call it the lesser lights, you see. Oh, you've been given some lesser form of initiation, some lesser form of enlightenment about a particular symbol. You see, this is how they work and operate. They're known to lie to the lower levels of their order as to the true meanings of the symbols. And oftentimes many of these symbols do convey multiple meanings, don't get me wrong. But they refer to this to the lesser and greater lights. And if you want to get theological about it, the lesser and greater light, if you want to go back to, like I said, some theological form of thought here, the lesser light would be Lucifer, and the greater light would be God, the Creator. But most of these people 
revere the lesser light, although they won't admit to that readily openly, and sometimes the teachings actually confuse the lesser light with the greater light, and that's wherein so many problems arise with their teachings, because they become misled by this lesser light. So that being the case, we could see that they do look at symbols and take the language of symbology very, very seriously. So let's continue reading. This is, in brief, the language and the philosophy of symbolism, or the exoteric and the esoteric garb of truth. The method itself, outside of all details or applications, has a deeper scientific significance than most persons are aware of. This method of instruction is not fanciful or arbitrary, but conforms to the process of eternal nature in building an atom or a world, a daisy or a man. Cosmos has evolved from chaos, and yet chaos remains the eternal potency, what Plato called the world of divine ideas. This will be more fully explained in a subsequent chapter. For the present, it may suffice to say that, the, that from primitive space, primordial ether, or what modern science might call the matrix, or origin of the nebulous mass, the earth, and all that it contains, has evolved. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Did you ever wonder where the term the matrix came from? Do you ever wonder where the movie The Matrix got its name? It's pulled directly out of Freemasonry, folks. We just read it right there, didn't we? I'm going to repeat that last sentence, just so you catch that. And maybe you could ponder upon the context of the sentence. For the present, it may suffice to say that from primitive space, primordial ether, or what modern science might call the matrix, or origin of the nebulous math nebulous mass, excuse me, the earth and all that it contains has evolved, the essential form, the idea of all things, the potency or force, and the matter, as we now discern it, must have existed in primordial space. Therefore, these two always exist vis-a-vis -vis the inner potency and the outer act, the concealed idea and the outer form, the inner meaning, and the outer event. Each is in its turn a symbol of the other. Hence the saying on the Smargadine tablet, As above, so below. All outward things are therefore symbols or embodiments of pre-existing ideas, and out of this subjective ideal realm, all visible things have emanated. This doctrine of emanations is the key to the philosophy of Plato and that of the Gnostic sects from which the early Christians derived their mysteries. This fact is mentioned here in order to show the deep foundations of the glyphs of masonry. And I'm going to pause again for a moment here, folks. Many, many important ideas conveyed in that paragraph here. So we see that primordial chaos consists of what they call primitive space and primordial ether. Primordial ether is what they call the matrix. 
the ether. This field in which all things exist and manifest and have movement and motion. Because you need a medium to move through, correct? Much like sound needs air as the medium through which to travel, well, light and those things that constitute light, which would be primordial matter, all things, matter, energy, they require some type of a medium to move through. That's the ether, folks, and that's what they call the matrix. Keep that in mind as we go through this a little bit further. So this nebulous math, mass, I keep saying math because they do like to use their nebulous math too, don't they? But this nebulous mass, the earth and all that it contains, has evolved in this matrix. So the ether is the order that was brought about from the chaos of primordial space, according to the mystic teachings of these various secret schools, of the Masons in particular. So order out of chaos. That's one of their favorite mantras, right? And they tie this back to the teachings of Plato and some of the Neoplatonists, Pythagoras, and many of the others in the ancient Greek teachings. And even before that, it could be tied back to the Egyptian teachings. And as far back as we can actually trace these things, that's where it can go when you study this stuff and follow the trail backwards through time. But anyway, so he's talking about now the glyphs of masonry, the symbols. And this is the important thing here, because we see symbols everywhere. They all have inherent meanings, various layers of meaning attached to them, and they're particularly important to the Mason. And we'll see how this all relates to the matrix in which we live as we continue on here. In the ritual of Masonry, King Solomon's temple is taken as a symbol. The building and the restoration of the temple at Jerusalem are dramatically represented in the work of the Lodge and in the ceremony of initiation by a play upon words and parody of events and applied to the candidate with admonition, warning, or encouragement as the drama unfolds. The measurements and proportion of the temple are dwelt upon in order to bring in the science of numbers, form, and proportion, so manifest in architecture and to connect them with the spiritual temple with which they have the same, though less obvious, relations. The symbolism is fitted to ideal relations rather than to actual existences or historical events. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So let me just kind of outline here a little bit of something. The Temple of Solomon they're not attaching this to the idea of an actual physical place or a historical event tied to a particular physical place. This is a symbol, a symbol of man, a symbol of the microcosm, also a symbol of the macrocosm. So this is what they're talking about when they're talking about rebuilding the temple. And they take these scriptures and stuff from the Bible, speaking of the temple, into a different context here. And let's see what else they have to say about this. Just remember, though, keep this in mind, that the measurements and proportions of the temple are dwelt upon in order to bring in the science of numbers, form, and proportion, and how they manifest in architecture. 
architecture is one of the keys here, folks. They build the symbology right into the buildings they have from time immemorial, especially when you go back and you look at edifices like the Gothic cathedrals. These are built on precise measurements, proportions, and various things of form. And this ties back to the old Platonic and Neoplatonic sciences, the mathematics of Pythagoras and Euclid and various others, all encoded in these buildings and all encoding a sacred geometry. So let's keep that in mind as we progress forward here. Let's continue from the reading here. The symbolism is fitted to ideal relations rather than to actual existences or historical events. Solomon, and they have it broken down in syllables here, Saul, S-O-L, Om, O-M, and On, O-N, Solomon, represents the name of deity in three languages, and the biblical history is doubtless an allegory or myth of the sun god. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So here they go. They come right out and they claim that the biblical story is no doubt an allegory or myth of the sun god. The biblical history, you see. So they're claiming it's myth. They're claiming it's allegory. Now, there are different types of meanings encapsulated in the symbology of the language of the Bible when you look at it in forms of allegory. But there are certain things, archaeological digs and stuff like that, various finds that have been done and various tracing back from third-party sources, outside sources other than the Bible, that attest to the historicity of the Bible. So them separating it from actual history here further causes a divide in people. And that's wherein they take advantage of the situation. It calls into doubt the truth of the text of the Bible. And that's not the case. I mean, the Bible is true. That's the bottom line with a lot of it. Many of these people will acknowledge its truth, but sometimes they like to cast shade on some of the things mentioned there, claim it's allegory or myth. Now, some of the, the stories and stuff that arise from the Bible can be construed as such and you can learn valuable lessons from them and find layers of meaning into the story because of the language in which these things were written down and recorded. So that's an important context to keep in mind too. So regardless of your stance on this, there's important information in the Bible and it needs to be understood and the layers of meaning that they draw upon to bring about some of these inherent truths in the world of nature, in the natural world, in natural law, are some of the best context to look at these things and understand. And sometimes they do a good job explaining a lot of these things in groups like Freemasonry. And sometimes they lead the mind astray. And it's sometimes very hard to differentiate between what's true and what's correct as far as the interpretation of the symbols with these things. So, with that being said, the interpretation thereof oftentimes is left to the discernment of the individual. And the Masons like it this way, and the secret schools like it this way. They like a little bit of 
wiggle room in how things could be interpreted with these symbols. And it's all part of the subjective nature of the symbol itself. And everybody's going to construe some slightly different meanings from one another. But there's usually a general intention and context encoded therein. So that's the things that we have to look at. So with that being said, let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here. Remember, Saul, Om, An represents the deity in three languages, Saul, Om, and On. And it is a key word sometimes that they use in their secret handshake rituals and stuff like that when they're meeting one another. It's a code word. They'll whisper that in, their e in each other's ear, uh, as well as other key words, depending upon the particular lodge and the particular circumstances and things of that nature. But... Uh, this is understood in masonry. Solomon is understood to be a construct, an allegory, allegorizing the sun god in three different languages. So the temple of Solomon would be the temple of the sun, you see. But let's go ahead and continue reading here. There is no reliable history of the construction of any such temple at Jerusalem, Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. Actually, yeah, there is. But uh, that's beside the point. Let's not contradict the Masons here. This is what they teach. But there, there, there's evidence. <laughs> there really is. There's a reliable history and evidence of such. And they say otherwise here. So keep that in mind. But let's continue. There is no reliable history of the construction of any such temple at Jerusalem, and recent explorations and measurements have greatly altered the dimensions as heretofore given. Hiram Abiff is dramatically represented to have lost his life when the temple was near completion, and yet it is recorded that after the completion of the temple, he labored for years to construct and ornament a palace for the king. Add to these facts the statement... The statement that the temple was constructed without the sound of a hammer or any tool of iron, and it is thus likened more nearly to that other spiritual temple not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, and the literal and historical features disappear, and the symbolism stands out in bold relief. Masonic lodges are dedicated to the Saints John, one of whom, the evangelist, opens his Gnostic gospel with the Greek philosophy of the Logos, the principle of emanation, already referred to, and the other, the seer of Patmos, writes a book symbolical of ancient initiations, which many a non-initiate has tried in vain to interpret. It may thus be seen that there is a deep significance in the dedication of lodges to the Saints John. Take, for example... Revelations, and he quotes it as Revelations here in the book, folks, and it's actually Revelation. So he's, he only half knowingly is quoting this. He truly does not care about biblical accuracy because he's not even quoting the, the book by the right name. There's no such biblical book called Revelations. It's Revelation. And something like this may sound like me being nitpickety, but it's hugely important when you're trying to be accurate when conveying some of this information. So he's not even calling the book by the right name. And that in and of itself tells me that he hasn't really read the Bible thoroughly. He's only repeating what he's heard from other people. 
So let's continue reading what he says here. So take, for example, Revelations 21.16. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal, a perfect cube. And he measured the wall thereof, an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, an angel. The language is evidently a veil designed to conceal the real meaning from the uninitiated. As the measure of man, that is, a perfect man or angel, we have the cube as a symbol of perfect proportion, hence a square man. The temple of Solomon, the cubical city which unfolded, becomes a cross. So if you've ever seen, I'm going to pause for a second, if you've ever seen a cube unfolded, it becomes a cross, right? Well, here they go playing their little mystical games that they like to play. So the cube unfolded becomes a cross, and hence the measure of man. All these refer to the work of regeneration or initiation. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's making some very significant claims here, and he's also giving us some significant clues about things. The Masons have a special reverence for St. John. Not only St. John the Revelator, the Apostle John, but also John the Baptist, the other St. John, you see. And they have high regard for these figures. In fact, they hold them sometimes in higher esteem than they do Jesus. Do you see how... This becomes a little convoluted when you begin to look into many of these things. So they, they hold these as being greater than Jesus. St. John being greater than Jesus in some of their stories and some of their connotations that they give. And they also tell the story here, and we see all of this interwoven together here, right? And this is the way the Masons do things. So they wove together the story of Hiram Abiff who is not a proven historical figure to have existed. And they, they readily acknowledge this. It's allegory, and they confuse it with the real historical narrative of the building of the temple. And they make certain claims about the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And they attach it allegorically to the idea of the spiritual temple. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there are some inherent spiritual truths with that. Don't get me wrong but they attach their own mythology to it and try to hijack the story, in a sense, and twist it into a form that they like, you see, where it comes to the builders and the builder, Hiram Abiff, being greater than the master or the king who ordered the building of the temple. And we might get into some of that here as we continue the reading. I don't want to... Uh, you know, get too hung up on side trails here. But the whole sense here is they're saying the building of the temple is an allegorical representation of a spiritual thing. Not completely wrong in that regard, right? But they're taking some of these ideas and attaching it to the measure of a man, which is the work of regeneration or initiation. And they're hung up hugely on this idea of initiation. 
they feel that they're the only ones worthy of initiation, the only ones worthy to hand out initiation or to provide initiation experiences. And as we've explored on previous broadcasts here, this is not a natural form of initiation. They've taken an artificial tact at the idea of initiation and weaponized it against people. And this in and of itself is disingenuous, you see. Because they alone, within these secret society groups, decide who gets initiated and what kind of an initiation ceremony or procedure people go through. A one-size-fits-all ordeal, you see. That's how they do it. And it's not necessarily the natural way or the correct way for somebody to go through an initiatory type process. It is a natural process that all beings go through. A type of initiatory process doesn't happen the same for everybody. doesn't always come about through some organized group. In fact, it doesn't come from an organized group in the natural world. And that's where in these secret society groups have stepped in and decided they're going to hijack this process of initiation. It's a type of spiritual growth that people go through. And they've taken this, twisted it, weaponized it, and they control this process. Now, in society at large, they've hijacked the whole thing. Now, people may have natural initiatory processes and not even realize that that's what they've done. And these secret society groups and these occultists won't acknowledge them as such. So they will still refer to you as the profane, even if you had some type of a, an initiatory process or experience outside of the bounds of one of these secret schools. You don't need to join one of these stupid secret orders, folks, in order to learn some of their secrets here or the things that they, they teach and find out. You see, you don't need to join their stupid group. You don't need to take the stupid blood oath and go through all the ritual nonsense of rolling up your pant leg and your sleeve and uh, blindfolding yourself, hoodwinking yourself. You see how they deceive you even in their initiatory processes? Because they want to show you the lesser light. You see, and have you just following this rabbit trail that never ends, dangling the carrot before your eyes, promising you more more power, maybe, more, more secret knowledge that could save you. All of these falsities that arise from such a thing. But I won't get hung up on that side trail. I want to continue reading here because there's a lot of good stuff that we're still going to cover here tonight. So let's continue on. Let me just find my place. <clears throat> the rebuilding of the temple after the plan drawn upon the trestle board, by which it shall be like that spiritual temple, not made with hands, plainly refers to initiation from which results perfect proportion and perfect harmony. In a later section of this work, this mathematical and geometrical basis of virtue and wisdom, or knowledge and power, will be further explained. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. He doesn't explain it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. He expounds upon it a little bit more, but uh, they they always will promise you, hey, we'll, we'll tell you a little bit more about that later. And they never tell you anything of importance with it within many of these works. Now, they might cover some of the ideas of sacred geometry and uh, different processes, different things like the golden mean 
the golden mean, the golden ratio, all of these things. But uh, by and large, they don't really reveal any secrets to you about these things. It's all understood. But let's, let's continue reading here. It is unknown to the craft of masonry, except in its bare outline and cruder symbolism. It is nowhere hidden, or sorry, it, it is nowhere hinted that there is an inherent relation and full equivalent between absolute mathematics and spiritual power. A very limited knowledge of the history of primitive worship and mysteries is necessary to enable any person to recognize in the master mason, Hiram, the Osiris of the Egyptians, the Mithras of the Persians, the Bacchus of the Greeks, the Attis of the Phrygians, of which these people celebrated the passion, death, and resurrection, as Christians celebrate today that of Jesus Christ. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, once again, they're connecting the idea of Hiram, this master mason in their mythology that they have. They're equating him to the gods of the ancient mystery schools. Osiris, Mithras, Bacchus, Attis. And they also compare the same concept to Jesus Christ. You see how they are, they're trying to attach a mystery teaching to Jesus Christ. This is mystic masonry, right? This is the mystical Christian viewpoint. This is where the Gnostics come in. The Gnostics were the original Christian mystics. And they do teach some true things, don't get me wrong. But once again, the waters become muddied with this stuff. Because Jesus Christ is not the same as Osiris, or Bacchus, or Attis, or Mithras. And they will continue to come up with these same things. Have you ever watched the movie Zeitgeist? They try to attach all of these different connections between these various mythological figures that don't fit. And they make it fit together. And that movie was one of the big keys in the modern age that began to elevate this idea among the common people, among the profane. And this only started being taught back in the mid to late 1800s by the Theosophical Society and various other groups. When you go back and look at that, they, they're teaching this equivalence between Christ and these other gods claiming it's the same mythologies it's derived from, and they come up with these explanations. They'll say things like they all have such and such in common. They were all born of virgins and stuff like that. Osiris wasn't born of a virgin, folks. But these are the same lies that are brought out and manifest in movies like Zeitgeist in order to equivalent these same ideas to you. Many of these mythologies never had all the connections that the story of Christ has until after the fact, and now you have these people within the secret schools attaching all of these different myths to it and making up blatant misrepresentations about what the original myths actually say. And when you trace it back in the history before, everything got really muddled in the mid-1800s within these secret society groups and the rise of theosophy and these various other teachings, you didn't find all of these 
same things attached to all these stories. Now, there are some similarities between many of them, yes, but it's not the exact same details like they would want you to believe and like the movie Zeitgeist portrayed them. So, actually, when you go back and you look at the movie Zeitgeist, you could go through and there were other videos and stuff that came out shortly thereafter that debunked all of those claims that were made when you go back and you look through the mythological representations there and all the equivalences that they drew they weren't correct they gave you false information just to fit the agenda that that movie was about and that agenda is very much Freemasonic so when you look at it you can understand that they had an agenda in mind when presenting it and it's the same thing presented in this book you see and this is how these ideas get man manifested and brought forward and accepted by many people as true and repeated and parroted. Because I assure you, that's what the maker of the film Zeitgeist did, parroted these Freemasonic teachings that only came about within the mid to late 1800s. Before then, there were some references to what they call astrotheology, yes, and there were some connections that are made, and there are some various aspects of it that similarities that go across all of these different ideas. Yes, there's definitely some of that there, but this was all grossly misrepresented in that movie, and that's why we have so many people that are misled in the modern society. So many people have abandoned the idea of God. There's this push for this hyper-materialist paradigm where people believe that science is the god. There's no need for a god anymore. Nietzsche taught about this about the same time all of these teachings came about within Masonry and, and some of the other secret society groups. He was concerned that this would cause nihilism, that man would no longer need a belief in a god, and therefore the moral foundation of society would collapse. And is that not what we see? Because if man does not believe that there needs to be a God in order for him to exist, that there's no creator, you see, that there's no such thing as a creator, that this just always was. And this is the way that it's taught within various of these secret schools, that there's no actual creator. The universe just has always existed. It's just there. It was this primordial chaos, you see. And then order was brought out of the chaos by the god of the secret schools, Lucifer, the great architect of the universe. He never created anything. He just took what was here and shaped it. This is what they teach, folks. And that being the case, they're revering a god that's not really the true creator, the true god that created all these things. And this, in and of itself, is why they're leading minds astray in the modern age and, you know, coming into many of these things. But anyway, I feel like I'm getting sidetracked again. I want to get back to the reading because there's still a lot of really good stuff in here. I mean, there are some truths, like I said, that are profound, that are written within many of these types of works. So let's continue with the reading here. Otherwise, this is the eternal and unvarying type of all the religions which have succeeded 
each other upon the earth. In an astronomical connection, Hiram is the representative of the sun, the symbol of his apparent progress, which, appearing at the south gate, so to speak, is smote downward and more downward as he advances toward the west, which, passing, he is immediately vanquished and put to death by darkness, represented in following the same allegory by the spirit of evil, but returning he rises again, conqueror and resurrected. After a long and very learned discussion of the phonetic and philo philological meaning, use, and derivation of certain god names, Albert Pike says on page 79 of his book, quote, Kurum, therefore, improperly called Hiram, is Kuram, the same as Hera, Hermes, and Heracles, the personification of light and the sun, the mediator, redeemer, and savior, end quote. And again, page 81, he says, quote, It is merely absurd to add the word abif or abif as part of the name of the artificer. Abin, which we read as abif, means of my fathers, formerly one of my father's servants or slaves, end quote. As to the fellow crafts concerned in the conspiracy, they are shown to have more than one meaning. Astronomically, this relates to the signs of the zodiac, the three wicked ones representing the winter solstice or death of the year and a consequent subjugation of the sun god. Can I pause for a moment here, folks? Okay, so he's speaking of the myth of Hiram Abiff. Hiram was murdered by three lesser masons who wanted to know the secrets that Hiram knew, and they were jealous, so they murdered him. So Hiram represents the sun god. He's the, the allegorized version of these other mythologies. You see that they explain here in the series of astrotheologies. And it's attached to various things that happen in the star patterns through different courses of time through the year. So... All these meanings have been attached. These stories have been told. And let's continue on here. Other meanings will be shown further on. Is it an accidental coincidence, asks Brother Pike in Morals and Dogma, page 82, quote, that in the name of each murderer are the two names of the good and evil deities of the Hebrews? For Yubel is Yahoo. Baal, or Yaho Baal, and that the three final syllables of the name A-O-M makes Aum, A-U-M, the sacred word of the Hindus, meaning the triune god, life-giving, life-preserving, life-destroying, and that would be Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, represented by the mystic character Y, the letter Y. We discussed the letter Y when we looked at King Kill 33, didn't we? Amazing how all these coincidences all come into being, right? Coincidence, I'm sure. But uh, rest assured, it's about the triune god, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, represented in the Indian mythologies. And we see here that the, he's equated it back. This is Albert Pike. This guy's quoting from Albert Pike now. Equated it back to the Hebrew deity, the good and evil deities of the Hebrews. You see, that's what he says. So let's read on here. 
And again, on page 620, Brother Pike says, quote, This word could not be pronounced except by the letters, for its pronunciation as one word was said to make earth tremble and even the angels of heaven or the elementals to quake with fear, end quote. Of course, he's speaking of the word Aum. A-U-M, Aum. This is a meditative practice even still today in some traditions. Aum. You see, and they get this from many of the mystical teachings of Eastern philosophy and the Eastern schools, the Eastern esoteric schools, as well as the Western. Many of these things have traveled forward in time through these various avenues of teaching, and they all equate to these different ideas, and you'll notice he, he uh, refers to the angels of heaven as elementals. <laughs> Keep that in mind, and it causes them to quake with fear. Let's continue reading here. The aim of the writer at this time is to show the general connection of Masonic glyphs with those of ancient times. The real meaning will appear further on. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's telling you up front that he's going to tell you the connection between these Masonic glyphs with those of ancient times. And then later, he'll tell you what the real meaning is further on. So he's going to give you a false meaning first. <laughs> and then he'll tell you the real one. This is how the Masons work. See, and if you're not paying close attention, you won't know what they're telling you is false. Sometimes they'll tell you up front that what they're telling you is disingenuous, and other times they won't. So at any rate, let's go ahead and continue reading here. As already declared, modern masonry being but an imitation of ancient genuine mysteries... I'm going to pause for another moment here, folks. Let me read that phrase again, and then I'll tell you what I think of that. As already declared, modern masonry being but an imitation of ancient genuine mysteries... Well, that's telling you that masonry is not genuine, right? It's a false knockoff. It's an imitation these are not the true ancient teachings that have been brought forward. It's an imitation. It's twisted. It's perverted. It's inverted for the purpose of an agenda. And that's usually the agenda of control or power by those involved. So this is not the teachings. Masonry is not the teachings of the genuine mysteries. It's a cheap knockoff. It's their way of controlling the narrative taking hold of some of these ancient knowledges and adapting them for their own personal means here. But that's my interpretation, and I reserve the right to be totally wrong about that. But in J.D. Buck's own words, it's an imitation of the ancient genuine mysteries, as I just read. So let me start that over again, and we'll continue reading. As already declared, modern masonry being but an imitation of ancient genuine mysteries... The writer has no design of reading into it a meaning which cannot be fully verified. For the greater part, modern masons are dealing with symbols, the key for the real interpretations of which they never possessed, or even suspected that it existed. It remains for the future to determine whether any considerable number of our Masonic brethren really desire to possess in fuller measure the living truth which the dead letter text conceals, 
that living truth exists and is as accessible to every Mason as is the dead letter or the dumb show under which it masquerades in every lodge. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Did you catch the nuance of his statement there? So he's saying there is living meaning under this, but most Masons miss it. They only look at the dead letter or the dumb show under which it the real meaning masquerades in every lodge. The dead letter. The dead entity. Do you catch those ideas inherent here? That's what it's about. So he's talking to people who may have a little bit more nuanced of a view of these things. Not necessarily somebody who's new to masonry or something like that. Somebody who may have a, a deeper understanding on a deeper level of some of these ideas. But let's continue reading. As to the sprig of acacia, Brother Pike says, quote, The genuine acacia also is the thorny tamarisk, the same tree which grew up around the body of Osiris. It is a sacred tree among the Arabs who made of it the idol Al-Uzza, which Mohammed destroyed. It is abundant as a bush in the desert of Thur, and of the of it the crown of thorns was composed, which was set on the forehead of Jesus of Nazareth. It is a fit type of immortality on account of its tenacity of life, for it has been known, when planted as a doorpost, to take root and shoot out budding boughs above the threshold. End quote. We see here the acacia tree. Very important symbol in masonry for these various reasons, as we just mentioned there. Let's continue, though. That's just one. Let's continue. Here again, we see a symbol ages old, revived and adopted in many forms, and further, that immortality was not brought to light for the first and only time by the man of sorrows of the Christians, yet in every case is the symbol nonetheless true. Whether any of these less sun gods or redeemers were historical characters or not, the symbolism teaches everywhere the same eternal truths, the resurrection and the life, redemption and immortality. After being obligated and brought to light, the candidate in the third degree is bantered with the statement that undoubtedly he now imagines himself a master mason. He is informed not only that such is not the case, but that there is no certainty that he ever will become such. He subsequently starts on his journey for the discovery of the lost word. The method by which he undertakes to obtain it, and the names of the three fellow crafts already referred to as brothers, may have very deep significance. After many trials, he receives a substitute, which he is to conceal with great fidelity, till further generations shall discover the lost word. The method by which he receives and is ever to transmit or use even the substitute is made exact and definite and guarded by solemn obligations. The meaning of both the great secrecy and the use of the word are left entirely to conjecture beyond the statement that it is a sacred name and must never be profaned or taken in vain or carelessly used and I venture the opinion that not one mason among 10,000 has ever been able to discover why. The force of the obligation is therefore in the oath and not in the reason. 
As a matter of fact, the real reason is scientific to the last analysis. Scientific to a degree beyond the penetration up to the present time of the radiant matter or the Röntgen ray of modern science. The word concerns the science of rhythmic vibrations and is the key to the equilibrium of all forces and to the harmony of eternal nature. This tradition of the ineffable name is brought into masonry from the Hebrew Kabbalah and how it became lost is partly historical at least. The ancient Hebrew priests evidently undertook to fit to the names of their tribal deities the symbolism and traditions of the Far East. If the master's word were really a word at all, the deity of the Hebrews might perhaps represent it as well as any other. It is a question of phonetics, however, rather than mere orthography. Beneath the Hebrew text of the Pentateuch lies concealed the science of the Kabbalah. The anathemas threatened for him who should alter by a single letter or yod the outer text had therefore a deeper meaning. The priests of many nations of antiquity were initiates in the mysteries, and as such they were monotheists while they, the ignorant masses were idolaters. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So here you go. Here he's telling you some true history. The priests of the mystery schools... They were initiates under various many names, but they were all monotheists. They all revered the same ideas, the same gods, the same god. They're claiming here, this guy's claiming that Kabbalah, the, the Hebrew Kabbalah, was one of the sources of the idea of the sacred name. You see, the, and he says it's a, more of a question of phonetics, however. So, it's the, the science of Kabbalah. Now, he's misconstruing Kabbalah because he's using the, the Kabbalah from the Hebrew here. And this is where things get a little more complicated, you see. Because there's many different forms of what's called Kabbalah. And it's associated, by and large, by most, with this Hebrew form of Kabbalah, which is a derivative for the word meaning tradition. In Hebrew, Kabbalah is spelled with a K. But he's also saying here, he's conveying the idea that it's a question of phonetics, which that would relate to what's known as the phonetic Kabbalah, Kabbalah, which starts with the letter C. You see, there's a differentiation between these things when you get deep enough into these teachings. And here is where things get a little off course for many people. So he's confusing the two here because they don't have the same origins. But he's tying it back anyway. He's saying now that the Hebrews got these their ideas from the Eastern mystery teachings. And there's really no evidence to support that claim that that's where the, the Kabbalah ideas for the Hebrews came from is from try them trying to tie together the Eastern ideas with their own, you see. But if you trace the, the word origins and stuff back, you find a lot of connections between East and West and many of these things when you trace the path of Kabbalah with a C rather than Kabbalah with a K. And this is wherein there's a cause for 
confusion in many of these things. There's also Kabbalah spelled with a Q. And I know this sounds like minutia to some people, and I may lose you on some of this ideology here, but uh, they're different things. They represent different things. It's a trinity of Kabbalah, you see, with the three different spellings. There's three different branches of Kabbalah. And they all have different, how should we say, different applications, I guess is the best way. Different origins, and sometimes their teachings overlap or cross, and sometimes they're completely unrelated to what you might think. It does get a little bit confusing and convoluted when you look at this stuff. It's three different streams of the ancient teachings uh, when Kabbalah is being referred to here. And this guy, this, this J.D. Buck, is confusing them, you see. So with that being said, let's continue reading and see what he does have to say here. So he says, The anathema is threatened for him who should alter by a single letter or yod. The outer text, therefore, had a deeper meaning. The priests of many nations of antiquity were initiates in the mysteries, and as such they were monotheists, while the ignorant masses were idolaters. The monotheism of the Jews was of a robust character, and their priests and prophets had a hard time to preserve their people from the seductive polytheism and abominations of surrounding nations. The ineffable name was not only concealed, but, quote, terrible as an army with banners, end quote. Jehovah was jealous, revengeful, vindictive toward the evildoer, and tolerated no rival in the broad expanse of cosmos, in no religion of antiquity is the anthropomorphic image of deity so strongly defined and the creator of man and worlds made so exceedingly human. The Kabbalah, on the contrary, embodying considerable of the true and ancient secret doctrine, held a different idea of divinity. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So here, once again, teaching in paradoxes and contradictions. So... They're saying here that Jehovah, this God of the Hebrews, was the creator of man and worlds, and he had an exceedingly human character, an anthropomorphic image of sorts. But the, Ka the Kabbalah, that's the teachings, the secret teachings, were teaching the secret doctrine. So they're telling you the mystery priests the priests of the mystery class of the Hebrew, were teaching something totally different here, the Kabbalah. So, once again, you have this mysticism underlying the teaching. And, of course, the claim, I'm sure, will be made that it was only the, the priestcraft of these teachings that was teaching the Kabbalah and understood it as Kabbalah rather than the external representation of the religious connotation given here. Only they knew the truth. I'm sure that's what he's going to say. Let's continue reading and see if uh, he follows suit with what I think he will do. The Kabbalah, on the contrary, embodying considerable of the true and ancient secret doctrine, held a different idea of divinity. While carrying the tradition, therefore, of the lost word, was as 
Sorry, while carrying the tradition, therefore, of the lost word as the ineffable name of deity, the symbolism was taken as literal fact, and the people who were commanded to make no graven image ended by making a gigantic idol, half Moloch and half man. Amid such contradictions, the symbolism adopted from the purer and gentler Aryans was ill at ease and far from home. Reverend Dr. Garrison claims in a contribution to the history of the lost word appended to Foote's early history of antiquities of Freemasonry that the four-syllabled name Jehovah was held by the Hebrews as the ineffable and that Adonai was used as a substitute. The high priest, once every year at the time of the atonement, entered alone into the Holy of Holies and there repeated the name. The name was thus withdrawn from and finally lost by the common people. This is ingenious and too literal to cover the case. The old query, what is in a name, is after all not so easy of answer, or the answer might be everything or nothing, according as you understand it or look at it. Before the introduction of the Masoretic points or indices of vowel sounds, the consonants were read by metrically intoning the text. The principle of the mantram was therefore known to the high priest at least, and therefore the word, the name, that known in all its plentitude and used with power, caused the whole world to shake, may have been used or invoked in the Holy of Holies by the Kabbalistic Hierophant. Some who read this may be even yet so ignorant of the potency of sound as to smile at the credulity and gullibility that it indicates that indicates it, and yet so superstitious over the letters of a name as to believe them more sacred in one form than another, notwithstanding it is the letter that killeth and the spirit or the breath that maketh alive. The consonants composing the Hebrew alphabet are about as sacred as so many wooden blocks. If one knows how to arrange the blocks and endow them with life, so that they may bud and blossom like Aaron's rod, that, of course, is a very different matter. There are dangers inseparable from symbolism which afford an impressive lesson in regard to similar risks attendant on the use of language. The imagination called in to assist the reason usurps its place or leaves its ally helplessly entangled in its web. Names which stand for things are confounded with them. The means are mistaken for the ends, the instrument of interpretation for the object, and thus symbols come to usurp an independent character as truths and persons. Though perhaps a necessary path, they are a dangerous one by which to approach the deity, in which many, says Plutarch, mistaking the sign for the thing signified, fell into a ridiculous superstition, while others, in avoiding one extreme, plunge into the no less hideous gulf of irreligion and impiety. End quote. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So this is actually a pretty good observation from Plutarch. So he says here that many people mistake deity for the symbol or the sign that signifies it, right? So they, they worship the symbol rather than the actual deity. And while others trying to avoid that, they will plunge into the no less hideous gulf of irreligion and impiety. 
So we see here that man will substitute the image of God for God. And that's why I still always seem to harp on the idea of image being so important. And that's exactly why. The image or the symbol, the symbolic representation of something is not the same as the actual thing in many regards. So the symbol of God, that's not God. The sun is one of the prime symbols of God, but the sun is not God, folks. And to think that ancient peoples mistook the actual sun in the sky for literal God is a misnomer. Ancient man was a lot more sophisticated than we give him credit for. He understood things on levels that we do not. We've lost a lot of this idea. So to think that ancient man was primitive and backward and that they worshipped the sun. They didn't worship the sun, folks. They recognized it as a symbol that represents God. They knew the sun was not God. And we have so, men, so much of this that's misdescribed to us by historians. And it's taken to the other extreme in these secret society groups. You see, they convey some of these meanings, but they also attach different agendas to it as well. But let's continue reading here. It is, thorough, it is through the mysteries, Cicero says, that we have learned the first principles of life, whether the term initiation is used with good reason. To employ nature's universal symbolism instead of the technicalities of language rewards the humblest inquirer and discloses its secrets to everyone in proportion to his preparatory training to comprehend them. If their philosophical meaning was above the comprehension of some, their moral and political meanings are within the reach of all. These mystic shows and performances were not the reading of a lecture, but the opening of a problem. Requiring research, they were calculated to arouse the dormant intellect. They implied no hostility to philosophy, because philosophy is the greater expounder of symbolism. There is a grand science known as magic, and every real master is a magician. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Let me read that again so you understand what's being said here and what has been done to the public perception of this thing. There is a grand science known as magic, and every real master is a magician. What has been done in the modern world, we've been taught to think of things as magic, as silly and nonsensical. The secret society groups, the mystery schools, they acknowledge this. They call it a grand science. Magic. And that every real master is a magician. So let's not get lost on the importance of magic in the modern world, because... It very much exists as and is in use today as much as ever before. It's just they've created the illusion to the people that there's no such thing. You can actually refer to it if you want to refer to it in more comfortable modern terms for our sensibilities in Western culture. You could refer to it as what could be construed as causal engineering if you want to use a more technical term for it. 
That's all magic is, folks. It's causal engineering. It's aligning certain things, certain precepts and principles and forces in a, in a way wherein a certain result will be achieved. That's all magic is. It's a very real thing. We've been taught to think of it as silly and nonsensical, but it's far from that. Make no doubt about it. But let's continue reading. There is a grand science known as magic, and every real master is a magician. Feared by the ignorant and ridiculed by the learned, the divine science and its masters have nonetheless existed in all ages and exist today. Masonry, in its deeper meaning and recondite mysteries, constitutes and possesses this science, and all genuine initiation consists in an orderly unfolding of the natural powers of the neophyte, so that he shall become the very thing he desires to possess. In seeking magic, he finally becomes the magus. All genuine initiation is, like evolution and regeneration, from within. Devoid of this inner meaning and power, all rituals are but foolish jargon, and all ceremonies an empty farce. Even such the rituals of masonry have become too many. That the Christ life and the power that made Jesus to be called Christos, Master, whereby he healed the sick, cast out devils, and foretold future events, is the same life revealed and attained by initiation in the greater mysteries of antiquity is perfectly plain. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now he's saying that Christ was an initiate. And that this is what true initiation looks like. You can do all the things Christ did. It's the divine science, you see. The greater mysteries of antiquity. That's what was attained by initiation into the greater mysteries of antiquity. That's what he's claiming here. That's the claim. I don't think the two things are equivalent. I'll be honest with you. I don't think being an initiate of the greater mysteries is on par or equivalent with the miracles that were performed by Jesus Christ. Not the same thing, although they will make the claim all the time without anything to really back it up. So they're telling you that that's just telling you the same thing that's happened in the ancient mysteries. I don't think so. <laughs> but that's the what he's telling you here. But let's go ahead and continue reading here. The disrepute into which the divine science has fallen has arisen from its abuse and degradation. Okay, I'm not going to disagree with him there. In the Middle Ages, and in fact in every age, there have been dabblers in magic, sorcerers and necromancers, who, possessing some of the secrets and imbued with none of its beneficence, have used their knowledge and power for purely personal and selfish ends. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. That's absolutely what these secret societies do today. This is the pot calling the kettle black, if you want to get proverbial about it here. But let's continue. Hypnotism and phenomenal spiritualism are su sufficient illustrations of the power to which I refer and the abuse to which it may be put. Magic, per se, is always a science, and up to a certain point it may be cultivated without regard to its use or the well-being of man, although any abuse of it is fatal to the magician. The popular idea is that education, 
consists largely in the cultivation of intellectual powers. An average standard of morals is always recommended by educators, and its outer form is illustrated by religious ceremonies. But intellectual cultivation alone, no matter to what extent it may be carried, and the further it goes in this one-sided way, the worse for all concerned, is in no sense an evolution. Perfect intellectual development without spiritual discernment and moral obligation is the sign manual of Satan. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So I don't think he's wrong about this. <laughs> I don't think he's wrong about this. Let me repeat that. Perfect intellectual development without spiritual discernment and moral obligation is the sign manual of Satan. Intelligence without goodness lies athwart the divine plan in the evolution of cosmos. Intellect and altruism by no means necessarily go hand in hand. One may have a very clear intellect, have quick perceptions, and be a good reasoner, and yet be very wicked. On the other hand, one may be very dull intellectually and yet be kind, brotherly, and sympathetic to the last degree. A world made up of the former would be a bad place to live in, if of the latter a thousand times to be preferred. Magic contemplates that all-around development which, liberating the intellect from the dominion of the senses and illuminating the spiritual perceptions, places the individual on the lines of least resistance with the inflexible laws of nature, and he becomes nature's co-worker or handmaid. To all such... Nature makes obeisance and delegates her powers, and they become masters. The real master conceals his power and uses it only for the good of others. He works without the hope of fee or reward. Discerning that knowledge is power, designing and evil men desire to possess both knowledge and power for entirely selfish purposes. It may be readily discerned that the more knowledge and power a purely selfish man possesses, the more inimical to humanity he becomes. He can do less harm if kept in ignorance. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, they play the game of we're gonna take something true and we're gonna contort it in a way wherein we weaponize it against the masses. And this is it right here, that last sentence. He can do less harm if kept in ignorance. That's why they call you the profane. That's why they keep you in ignorance. That's how they justify the idea of secrecy, which in my view is repugnant. Secrecy. Secrecy is probably the oldest form of mind control. The oldest form of power. You see... So, this creates another paradoxical situation here. Maybe they're correct. Maybe a, an evil man with intellectual prowess or knowing certain things and having certain information that other people don't is a dangerous thing. But at the same token, don't they understand that by keeping secrets, by keeping this information in the confines of such a small group will only breed this type of a situation. I think many in the secret society groups may have understood this. 
to a certain degree, and I do think there were some good people involved with these things, and I think there still are, although they may be misguided. They may be misled in many ways, and they may think they're doing good things, when in fact they're creating more division and harm, potentially, through the use of secrecy and other things which cause harm to people. If these sciences and these different concepts are good and helpful to people, why keep them from them? Now, I understand he just used the excuse here. It's because when, when used in ignorance, it could cause a problem. Or when used in a selfish way, it can cause a problem. When they understand something in a selfish way and use it in a selfish way, it could cause a problem. Okay, I get that, but what's going to prevent that from happening within a smaller secret group? In fact, this would only breed more reason for people within that group to keep the secrecy and to have the selfish means, you see, or the selfish intentions with it, if I'm making sense to you out there. Keeping the rest of the masses ignorant, holding a secret, keeping secret knowledge that the rest of the public doesn't have. Well, that kind of leads to an air of arrogance in many, breeds contempt to the regular person, and gives more, I guess, uh, fuel to the fire, per se, for those within these secret groups to pursue those entirely selfish purposes. Anyway, let's continue reading, though. We'll read that last sentence again and continue on. He can do less harm if kept in ignorance. This is especially the case in regard to those deeper sciences which deal with mind and influence the thoughts and actions of others. I'm going to pause again. I can't. I'm sorry, folks. I can't shut up about this stuff when they make blatant statements like that. Let me read that again. This is especially the case in regard to those deeper sciences which deal with mind and influence the thoughts and actions of others. Well, they're very much, they're telling you that they have some of these sciences, these concepts that they understand. They're used to influence and control people's minds and actions. But see, if, if somebody ignorant gets a hold of these or selfish, that could be very dangerous. But of course, we're, we're the good guys, right? All of us who keep these secrets from the masses and from everybody else and use them to further our secret brotherhoods, we're, we're, we're the good guys. <laughs> we're the only ones that are trustworthy with this stuff. Do you see how it's a two-edged sword and the people that claim to be using it for good and doing good things and think that by not casting your pearls before swine, you're doing something good, are actually using it in a weaponized fashion against others. Do you see how this causes this disconnect? And I'm sure a lot of these people, they legitimately believe they're doing right by not allowing the profane to get hold of this type of information. Because they think that uh, in the hands of the ignorant, it would cause serious harm. Well, <laughs> what's been done by the secret schools against the masses at large 
Let's continue reading, though. <laughs> Suppose one were able to hypnotize large numbers of persons at once and compel them to do his bidding, and that his motives were not only selfish, but all results injurious to his agents. Such a person would be a magician, and as his motive would be purely selfish, a black magician. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. I'm sorry, I can't help myself pausing here so much. Let me read that again, and you could ponder upon what's happened over the course of the past three years. Suppose one were able to hypnotize large numbers of persons at once and compel them to do his bidding, and that his motives were not only selfish, but all results injurious to his agents. Such a person would be a magician, and as his motive would be purely selfish, a black magician. What can we say about Anthony Fauci? What can we say about... All of those out there who pushed and promoted this whole pandemic situation and caused injurious harm to people, compelled them to do something they had no intention of doing that was potentially harmful to them, and yet they lined up in droves and went out there and got injections of experimental gene therapies, put masks on their face and blocked their spirits, their breath. It's black magic, folks. Black magic. Fauci. The Jaws. Fauci means Jaws. Did you know that? The Jaws of the Wolf. Let's continue. Modern science, purely materialistic in its aims and conclusions, has always, till very recently, ridiculed the idea embodied in magic, and were it not for the fact that it has been compelled to recognize under the name hypnotism since the time of Braid, the very force which it denied and condemned in the days of Mesmer, it might be difficult to find a palpable and undeniable illustration of what kind of power is involved in magic. But hypnotism is not even the alphabet of the vocabulary known to the real master or magician. It is but an empirical dabbling in a power of gigantic proportions, the key to which makes of its possessor either a savior or a destroyer of his fellow men. We have only to reflect on the use already made of hypnotism for public exhibitions, for personal greed, by its professors, God save the mark, to determine whether any larger output of occult knowledge would be desirable or beneficial to mankind at large. The traditional lost word of the master is a key to all the science of magic. The knowledge of the master is not empirical. It does not consist of a few isolated formulae by which certain startling or unusual effects can be produced. The magician's art is based on a science far more deep and exact than modern physical science has yet dreamed of, and back of this science lies a philosophy as boundless as cosmos, as inexhaustible as time, and as beneficent as the Father in heaven. If the Masonic meaning of master, perfect and sublime master, prince, adept, etc., is less than I have indicated, then it is a roaring farce or a stupendous humbug. The conception of masonry 
is true, but it has adopted or imitated the ritual and glyphs of a science, the key to which not only one mason in 10,000 possesses, and hence the tradition of the lost word has a literal, no less than a symbolical meaning. The substitute is given to the neophyte till future generations shall find the true word. The question now propounded to every obligated or so-called master mason is, is the present the generation in which that which was lost shall be found? And each must answer for himself singly, just as he entered his lodge, first saw the light and took his obligation, just as every real master or white adept has done since the beginning of time. There exists in Masonic literature many learned essays on history, orthography, and philology of the lost word, but I am acquainted with no treatise that apprehends the nature of the real secret, like that of Brother Albert Pike in his great work, and yet, if he knew the whole secret, he concealed it at last. The more immediate source from which the legend is imported into masonry is the Jewish Kabbalah, derived doubtless from the Chaldean and Zoroastrian form of the secret doctrine, the principles and methods of which were unfolded by the late lamented brother J. Ralston Skinner. Brother Skinner's greater works, however, aside from his source of measures, and a large number of pamphlets exist only in manuscript, and are of so abstruse a character as to be of little use except to profound scholars. Running all through the Talmud are found references to the secret wisdom, while the Sohar, the Kabbalah Dinduta, and other Kabbalistic works are all written with a veil designed to conceal the secret from the uninitiated and to be meaningless without the key. Brother Skinner's discoveries were the reward of genius, made as the result of stumbling on one of the keys that unlock the golden gates of the palace of the king. His discoveries lay the foundation for a systematic and scientific study of the Kabbalistic form of the secret doctrine which lies concealed beneath the Hebrew text of the Pentateuch, and which no commentary has ever revealed or intended to reveal. Perhaps another generation of biblical Hebrew scholars may discard their preconceptions, prejudices, and superstitions of the mere verbiage of the text sufficiently to desire to discover the real meaning of the Pentateuch as to the creation of men and worlds. Copies of Brother Skinner's unpublished researches have been so placed by his special desire and act that they may be preserved for such future investigators and not again be lost to the world. But the Hebrew Kabbalah is but one of many sources from which the secret science may be derived, and it is not the one which in its form of symbolism and method of interpretation is best fitted to the present age. When the symbolism of the Kabbalah is read by the key furnished by Brother Skinner, it requires to be again translated into modern ideas or forms of thought. The basis of it was the Chaldean Book of Numbers, so genuine copy of which, if in existence, is accessible to modern students. Several spurious copies are known to exist, and it is possible that a genuine copy may be produced at a proper time. For be it remembered that genuine masters, prince adept masons, have always existed, and no book or record worth preserving or necessary for the good of man is ever lost. In secret crypts, 
alike inaccessible to the vandal hand of man and the corrosion of time and decay these treasures are said to be preserved all human progress runs in cycles modern materialistic science has had its brief day and philosophy has already undermined its foundations the new age will show a genuine revival of philosophy the immortal principles enunciated by Plato, clothed in modern garb of thought, less involved and dialectical, will again command the attention of the thinking world. Everyone is aware that the source of Plato's knowledge was the mysteries. He was an initiate, and on almost every page reveals the obligation he is under not to betray to the common people the secrets taught only to initiates under the Pledge of Secrecy. going to pause for a moment here, folks. They've hijacked the secret knowledge in these secret society groups. They've taken a pledge of secrecy. They won't reveal it. Plato was one of the initiates. So if this is so important and so very beneficial to mankind, why keep it a secret other than for the purposes of maintaining power or control over others? Hmm? what's the pledge of secrecy about and i know they'll justify it don't cast your pearls before swine and you know having this knowledge can be harmful for men that are ignorant of its its real use and intention and things like that they always will try to play the martyr here they always will try to take the tact of, well, we're the good guys. We've got to keep this from the bad guys getting a hold of it. It's the same thing the intelligence communities and the military do. Well, we're just developing these weapons because the enemy might have some. You see. And we have to be protected from that. Or we're developing this secret new technology or new weapon because we don't need the enemy to get a hold of this. But we should have it because we're the good guys, right? It's the same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. It's all based in human nature, like always. The foregoing digression seemed necessary in order to show the real basis for the traditions of the lost word and to put beyond cavil, at least with the more rational, the idea that the master's word is a real thing, the genuineness and power of which is not overdrawn in the parables and glyphs of Freemasonry. The true word of a Mason is to be found in the concealed and profound meaning of the ineffable name of deity communicated by God to Moses, rather by the priests of Egypt, he says here in parentheses, and which meaning was long lost by the very precautions taken to conceal it. The true pronunciation of that name was in truth a secret, in which, however, was involved the far more profound secret of its meaning. Thus the ineffable name not only embodies the great philosophical idea that the deity is the ends, the two, on, the absolute existence, that of which is the essence, is to exist, the only substance of Spinoza, the being, that never could have existed as contradistinguished from that which only becomes, not nature or the soul of nature, but that which created nature, but also the idea of the male and female principles in its highest and most profound sense, to wit, that God originally comprehended in himself all that is, 
that matter was not coexistent with him or independent of him, that he did not merely fashion and shape pre-existing chaos into a universe, but that his thought manifested itself outwardly in the universe, which so became, and before was not, except as comprehended in him, that the generative power or spirit in the productive matter ever among the ancients deemed the female originally were in God, and that he was and is all that was, that is, and that shall be, in whom all else lives, moves, and has its being. This was the great mystery of the ineffable name, and of course its true pronunciation and its meaning become lost or became lost to all except the select few to whom it was confided, it being concealed from the common people because the deity, thus metaphysically named, was not that personal and capricious and, as it were, tangible God in whom they believed, and who alone was within reach of their rude capacities. This was the profound truth, hidden in the ancient allegory and covered from the general view with a double veil. This was the exoteric meaning of the generation and production of the Indian, Chaldean, and Phoenician cosmogenies, of the active and passive powers of the male and female principles, of heaven and its luminaries generating and the earth producing, all hidden from vulgar view as above its comprehension, the doctrine that matter is not eternal, but that God was the only original existence, the absolute from whom everything has proceeded, and to whom all returns. And this true word is with entire accuracy said to have been lost, because its meaning was lost even among the Hebrews, although we still find the name, its real meaning unsuspected, in the who, H-U, of the Druids, and the fohi of the Chinese. There is in nature one most potent force by means whereof a single man who could possess himself of it and should know how to direct it could revolutionize and change the face of the world. This force was known to the ancients. It is a universal agent whose supreme law is equilibrium and whereby, if science can but learn how to control it, it will po be possible to change the order of the seasons to produce in night the phenomena of day, to send a thought in an instant round the world, to heal or slay at a distance, to give our words universal success and make them reverberate everywhere. I'm going to drop it right there, folks. I'll let you ponder upon that last bit. So as he was closing out here, he's saying some true things about God, making some contradistinctions against what they teach within these secret society groups, you see. But also, he's telling you something important about their belief systems, the life principle of the world, the force, as he calls it. The force. Where do you think these ideas that come about in our science fiction and stuff come from, folks? Interesting stuff, isn't it? The lost word, the force. They're initiating your mind with this stuff, folks, for their new age. 
And although there are some profound truths that underlie some of it, like I said, understand they always mix in the poison with that, leading you astray from what the actual truth is. And it's very hard to distinguish at times. But this is valuable information. That's why I like to cover these things. And this book by J.D. Buck is a pretty good one for exploring some of these ideas within masonry, especially the mystic side of it, as alluded to in the title, Mystic Masonry. And here we are in the Grand Matrix on the game board of reality as we see the pieces being moved about by these people controlling the game, the secret society groups, the Masons, the Rosicrucians, the Illuminati, all of these various secret brotherhoods. Some of them intend good things for humanity, some of them not so much, but it seems to me that the organized portions of this are all organized by the bad guys. And they've kept many of these ideas hidden from mankind, not for mankind's own sake, but for the sake of the power of the Brotherhood to maintain control here, to control this world, to lead the world to the next step of evolution as they see fit, because they see themselves as being the only worthy ones to step into that place. The profane have no place in their new age, folks. If you're not an initiate in one of their orders, you're nothing. You see, that's how they view you. That's how they see you. They see you as little more than cattle to be manipulated and used as they see fit. Unless, of course, you happen to be initiated. And then, and only then, do you have a soul. And then if you have a soul, well then... It's all about building that soul, but they've got to try to hamper you at every turn because they don't want you to achieve some initiatory-type process that's outside of their control. That's why they've instituted these artificial initiations within the secret society groups. And they seek to be the ones that are the arbiters of these initiatory processes. Why do you think that is? Well, that's all control, too. And, of course, they won't acknowledge anything that happens external to their secret society groups that could be construed as a type of natural initiation. You see, they'll try to explain that away. Or they'll still think you're profane or call you the profane. Interesting things to think upon, but we see here the game's rigged. It's these people in these secret society groups, these ones at the topmost levels of the power structure, these dark occultists who run things in this world that very much constitute some of these secret groups and maintain controls within these secret groups to try to keep information like this hidden from the masses because they leverage it all the time against them. It's to maintain their control and their power. That's the reason for the secrecy. They don't want people to catch on that this is very real stuff. That the idea of magic is not so silly after all. Because the moment that society understands that, well then they're in a whole lot of trouble, aren't they? 
They can't maintain their control on the thing like they have in the past. And yes, there's always ill-willed people out there, bad people, that can misuse knowledge in certain ways. But sadly, they're the ones that find the inroads to power most of the time. That's the real shame of all of this. So that being the case, folks, we're going to close it out there. I want to thank you all for tuning in tonight. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me. Say